want to begin today by summarizing a story from the children's book, Frog and Toad Together. Any Frog and Toad fans out there? Be bold. Toad bakes a batch of delicious cookies and goes to his friend Frog's house to share them. They eat many cookies. You know, Toad, said Frog with his mouthful, I think we should stop eating. We will soon be sick. You are right, said Toad. Let us eat one last cookie and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one last cookie. Frog, said Toad, let us eat one very last cookie and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. The story continues with both characters lamenting how much they need willpower. What is willpower? asked Toad, swallowing another mouthful. Willpower is trying very hard not to do something you want to do very much, Frog says. Frog then discusses a variety of ways to help them with willpower, putting the cookies in a box and tying them up with a string, putting them high up out of reach, but each time they discover, in between bites, it doesn't help. In desperation, Frog finally dumps the remaining cookies outside on the ground. Hey birds, here are cookies, he calls. Now we have no more cookies, says Toad sadly. Yes, said Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. You may keep it all, Toad replies. I'm going home to bake a cake. I'm guessing most of us here can relate. Maybe it's not cookies. Maybe it's compulsive shopping or binging on Netflix or video games. Maybe it's a short temper that erodes a relationship dear to you. Maybe it's the frenetic pace of life you know is not good for you but feel powerless to change. Maybe it's anxiety or fear you can't seem to get a hold of. I think if we're honest, we can all relate to this experience of what we want to do, we don't do. And what we don't want to do, we do. Sometimes people are surprised to learn that even Christians share this struggle. In fact, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul describes in one of his letters. And as such, it is a fitting conclusion to our series today, Cultivate. For the last three weeks, we've been looking at how God changes us or forms us into his image. And if you haven't taken the time yet, I want to encourage you to spend a few minutes looking at the four paintings hanging on the wall in our lobby. One of our own artists painted these for us, and together they are a visual reminder of the truths we have talked about each week. When we kicked off the series, we looked at how the goal of spiritual growth is Christ-likeness, looking like Jesus in the core of our being, and that this is actually good fruit we want in our lives, sincere love, patient trust, joyful delight in God's gift, gifts, and purpose and meaning to our days. But as we saw in week two, this is a slow grow. It's a gradual process. And we can't do it without Jesus. Just as a branch can't bear fruit unless it remains in the vine, so we too must stay connected to Jesus in order to grow. And so last week we looked at some of these nourishing elements. We looked at the idea of creating habits, sometimes called spiritual disciplines, as a way of making ourselves available to God to do this forming in us. While there are many habits to work with, we look specifically at the practice of thinking about what we read in the Bible. Now we're concluding this week by looking at crop threats. 
What can threaten or prohibit growth in us? What causes us to dry up and wither like those roots that need some water? What are the little black crows in our own lives that threaten to peck away at what's growing? What causes gray rain clouds over our heads? One external threat that's real and bears mentioning is that we do have an enemy. To use this image, there is a master crow with beady little eyes who wants to destroy healthy crops. The Bible tells us Satan is real and he has one purpose, John 10, 10, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so we must be vigilant against him. We must be praying for one another regularly as Jesus taught us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But today, I want to talk about a threat that's internal. And it's what Paul describes in Romans 7 and 8. I want to spend a few minutes looking at that passage, and then we'll look at three ways Paul's words impact our own growth process. Are you ready? Remember, Paul is a key founder of Christianity. He wrote the majority of books in the New Testament. Here's what he says about his spiritual life in Romans 7, starting verse 18. If you're following along in our Pew Bibles on page 1716, I'm not going to go verse by verse. I'm simply highlighting some within the context. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Skipping on down to verse 18 to 19. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. He sounds like Toad with a plate of cookies, doesn't he? Isn't he a better Christian than this? I should tell you that some scholars cannot imagine Paul having this kind of struggle, so they interpret this description of Paul as before he came to Christ. But the majority of scholars disagree with that conclusion, largely because Paul says in verse 22 how he loves God's way. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Most people think Paul is describing his, and therefore our, reality as followers of Jesus. Paul wants to do the right thing, Romans 7, 18, but another law is at work simultaneously. I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, I'm going to come back to that phrase, body of death, in a moment. Paul feels trapped. He feels like he can't get out of the rut that he's in. The habits he is in enslave him. I think we can all relate to that feeling at times. But into that bleak situation, Paul declares in verse 25 that the body of sin can be overcome. It can be rendered ineffective. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He continues on in, in chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verses 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will make alive your dead body also through the spirit which dwells in you. New Testament scholar Robert Mulholland comments on this passage in his book, Invitation to a Journey. This circle represents each one of us before we come to faith in Christ. We are in control of our lives. That's what the I in the middle is for. We pursue our will, our desires, our interests, our agenda, our purposes, our plans, our wants. As we make our way through life as the one in charge, we begin to develop our own way of being in the world and making sense of it, represented by all these little X's. We develop a way of operating in the world to fulfill our own purposes. Under our own leadership, we develop a whole structure of habits, attitudes, perspectives, dynamics of relationship, and ways of reacting and responding to the world around us. We develop, you might say, a body of being, a complex network of habits and attitudes, all built with us as the center and geared towards fulfilling our own purposes and desires. Now, at some point in the process, if we become a Christian, we choose to put God in the center of our lives. We choose to let him be the leader. Now, his desires and purposes are going to regulate our desires and purposes. But what happens to that old network of habits, attitudes, and perspectives on how we relate to the world? It's all still there. And this is what Paul is referencing when he's talking about the body of death in Romans 7, 24. This is what he means when he says our body is dead because of sin. Even though we've come to believe Jesus' way is the good way, we have years of thinking, feeling, behaving that do not get over, erased overnight. And those ways go deep down into the core of our being. Harmful old habits ingrained, imprisoning attitudes, damaging perspectives, destructive ways of relating with others, unhealthy ways of reacting to the world around us. It's deeper than just how we behave. But Paul says it can be changed from the inside out. Both our being, or that be, our internal nature, as well as the D, our doing, or our behavior, while Paul acknowledges that this is the reality for the follower of Christ, he also promises that that reality can be changed over time through the work of the Holy Spirit. He offers us two responses to the condition in which we find ourselves. Romans 8, 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Two options. Live by the sinful nature. Keep living like you did before with the same behaviors, beliefs, desires, even though Christ is now at the center. And many people who have become Christians do this. And then we wonder why people looking in from the outside don't see any difference between the lives of those who claim to follow Christ and those who don't. The second option, Paul says, is by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body and experience life. 
We can, over time, alter those old ways of being in the world. We can put them to death and create new life-giving ways, ways that will affect not just our outward behavior but our inward nature as well. But it will require some intentionality to alter those ways of being. Here's that partnership. We have seen this just about every week, and I do not apologize for that. I want that to be in our brains. By the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. God will do it, but he won't do it without us. We've got to put ourselves in a position for his spirit to change us. And that kind of change doesn't happen by willpower alone. It doesn't happen just by trying harder to be a different kind of person. Imagine you decided you wanted to run in this year's Twin Cities Marathon. Now, what would happen if you really, really wanted to run the marathon and you decided you were gonna try, but you were just gonna run a couple of times between now and then? How would that go for you? Not so well, particularly if you're someone who doesn't generally run marathons. If you wanna run a marathon, you have to train for it. You can't run 26 miles now, but you can submit your body to a training program and eventually you will be able to run 26 miles. This is the idea behind the spiritual disciplines that I introduced last week. You and I have a body of death that is so deeply ingrained in us, willpower alone will not change it. But God's spirit can bring about change in us if we give him the freedom to if we allow him to, if we, so to speak, submit to his training program. And his training program is simply following the pattern of what Jesus himself and his earliest friends and followers did. Praying, worshiping regularly, engaging with the Bible, serving often with secrecy, giving, and much more. We cannot right now be the people we want to be but we can choose to arrange our lives around certain habits and practices that only by God's grace can help us get there, can turn us into a different kind of person. So, what does all of this mean for us? Let's get real personal here. I think this reality has three applications for us. First, we all have a body of death. Meaning we all, Christians, church leaders included, have developed ways of being in the world before Jesus was our leader that now need to be changed. Now before you dismiss this point, I find in my experience, this is something we all know in our heads, but struggle to accept when we're confronted with this reality. Here's what I mean. If spiritual growth is being formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, then the process of being formed into the image of Christ is going to take place primarily at the points in my life where I do not yet resemble him. This is one of the job descriptions of the Holy Spirit, John 16, 8, to convict the world of sin. Now the Holy Spirit may do this suddenly or gradually. He may use one big event or the cumulative effect of several events to reveal truth to us. Interestingly, and frankly, annoyingly, he may even use other people. And this is one of the challenges of any significant relationship and certainly of any Christian community. 
because we function like little mirrors to one another, holding up what we see. This is what you look like when you do that. Do you see what's here? However the Holy Spirit gets our attention, this is what is known by the spiritual writers as the awakening phase of growth. And it's in that moment that a crop threat exists. One writer calls it the hazardous half second. We have to have both the courage and the humility to confront what we see. It is so painful to see how far we fall short of who we want to be, but we simply cannot move forward without seeing ourselves accurately. But if we choose to see ourselves with sober judgment, as Romans 12 urges, we can then invite the Holy Spirit to meet us in that place. We can ask for help. One of Israel's kings, King David, whose story we'll be looking at next week in a new series, made some huge mistakes, but he also met God in them. And out of that experience, he penned this prayer, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you do not despise. Thanks be to God. Genuine brokenness pleases God far more than pretend spirituality. So the next time we're confronted with our selfishness or our pride or the desire to control or, or, instead of feeling badly or minimizing it or getting angry at the person who brought it to our attention, what if we simply say, oh God, meet me here. I need you. The message paraphrases Jesus' introduction to the Sermon on the Mount with these words, blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God. We all have a body of death. The first step in overcoming it is admitting it's there to begin with. Second, and this is really related, we all have a unique body of death. <laughs> I promise this will be encouraging. Because of our personalities, backgrounds, core relationships, attachment style from birth, whatever, we are not only all unique, we are all uniquely messed up. It's true. If we all have a unique body of death, then the way in which we all grow will be unique. Yes, because of human nature, there are shared themes, similar patterns, but the specific habits we need to grow may not be what others need. Or the habits that really bear fruit in us may not produce fruit in others. So here's the second crop threat, assuming there is a one-size-fits-all to spirituality and spiritual growth. Imagine a doctor who knows of only one medication, penicillin. That's all she prescribes, regardless of your ailment. Now, if you happen to have strep throat, you will find her helpful, yes? If you happen to have a large kidney stone, what she prescribed to the last patient is not gonna help you. And we tend to do this with the spiritual life. We find something that's good or helpful for us and then we think everybody should do it. It's called legalism. We find a medication that helped us and we think everyone should be on it. And then we wonder why it didn't produce the same result in them as it did us. But given the vast uniqueness of our personalities, wounds, strengths, and vulnerabilities, the key to growth is not copying what someone else is doing, but in finding the unique conditions that will help us grow. 
We need each other for encouragement in this journey of growth, not for competition. So yes, let's learn and commit to learn from one another. But let's also allow ourselves the freedom to discern whether someone else's habits need to become our own. And that leads me to the third and final application. We need to listen to God to know how to put to death our unique body of death. Christianity is not primarily a religion. It is a relationship. A relationship with a God who loves us, who wants what is best for us, who has offered his life on our behalf and who dwells in us to see that life permeate every aspect of our being. And any relationship requires communication to grow. Question, how much time do you actually give God to speak to you? I was asked this several months ago by a trusted mentor and after some pause, I had to admit sheepishly, I hadn't been giving him a lot of time lately to talk. I found that when we were together, I was doing most of the talking. As we talked, she suggested a new habit for me to experiment with for the next 30 days. And while it was very difficult in the beginning because it involved the removal of caffeine or withdrawing of caffeine, I have found it to be bearing fruit in my own life. So let me ask you, how can you make yourself available for God to speak to you about how he wants you to grow? As we close today and conclude this series, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. In a moment, I'm going to close us in prayer. And then during the next song, maybe you'll want to take out your gray insert inside the program and write down just one area of your life where God may be inviting you to grow. And I really do mean just one. Let's not pursue a lot and get discouraged. Just one. If you have some idea about what habit you might want to explore or experiment with to help you with that, write that down. Otherwise, write down the name of a person you can talk about that with. But let's not delay. Let's not put it off any longer because we are all being cultivated in one way or another. C.S. Lewis writes about this phenomena in his book, Mere Christianity, and I'm going to quote him extensively here. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of hatred with God, with its fellow creatures, and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. It is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at every moment is progressing to the one state or the other. City Church, we are all being formed. The only question is how. God, the ever-patient gardener, wants to cultivate good fruit in each one of us.
As our creator, he delights in our uniqueness and he knows what we need to grow. Let's commit to seeking him to show us what we need to bear fruit. Let's pray. Oh God, what a privilege that wretched people we are, you have sought us. You have made us, you have created us, you love us, and you can't stop loving us. You have bought us with your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we can have life both now and evermore. And you have given us, you have indwelt us with your Holy Spirit, who can empower us to change these patterns, difficult as that is, we invite you now, Holy Spirit, to do that work in us. We ask now that for every life here, for every heart, every mind, you would do your translating work. What is it we can change in our lives to submit to your training program that a year from now, a few years from now, we would not be the same we would look more like your son, Jesus. We ask this for our sake because it is such good fruit and for your glory.